Sports ball. Hello. I don't think it's a surprise when it, I say I picked this just so I could talk about baseball. I know we're starting to say like who um, is the person who suggests well, this topic. Wait, yeah. I thought I was the one who put this on the calendar. I said we need to talk about a league of their own. That's yeah. But I think Lexi put it on the spreadsheet. I think Haley put it on the calendar. Yeah, I think I had the idea on the spreadsheet because I realized, um, and I'll mention this later in my story, but someone suggested my lady eons ago. Okay. Um, But I don't think I put a date to it. You probably put a date to it because, well, I'll let you explain. I watched a league of their own and you know how like there's definitely that TikTok trend where it's like hot gals you know you're a hot gal if you're obsessed with like these four time periods I was none of those I was an American girl doll gal so I had the variety of timelines but then I was the all American girls professional baseball league that happened during World War II so when people were like oh I love World War II it's so fascinating I would say the baseball, sure. Everything else, mm, let's not talk about. Let's just talk about the baseball. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History. The good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Hey Lexi, if you could invent a sport, what would it be? Dog baseball. All the tiny dogs wear little baseball pants and hit the balls with tiny dog bats. And Haley, what's the most athletic thing about you? I don't think I'm athletic anymore, but I did used to play softball and I was the runner. I like we had too many outfielders and I wasn't like the best outfielder. So I just run the bases. And I'm Alana and my favorite sports team is fourth tier English football team, AFC Wimbledon. It is the same intro that I used last sports episode because between sports episodes, AFC Wimbledon was relegated. Lexi, did you watch any more of a league of their own? I watched two episodes and I gave up. I didn't watch any. I meant to. And then they did not. Although it seems like Haley thinks otherwise. All I've heard from literally everyone except for Lexi is that is great things. Yeah just having the actual players have their voice and say in how the like the editing and directions going like Maybelle Blair who actually came out at like nine I think she's 95 right now she came out as a queer lady during the promotion and was like so I feel like this is a safe place for me now The Olympic torch is about to be extinguished in a blaze of glory by the U.S. track team in the 400-meter relay. I just wanted to let you all know that for scheduling reasons, we're recording separately this week. So if things seem a little off or no one's laughing at our jokes, that is the reason why. Now on to the story. What do Wilma Rudolph and Weeping Angels have in common? People have warned don't blink about both of them. I'm chuckling in Doctor Who references for those who do not know about Doctor Who. Born on June 23, 1940, in Tennessee, Wilma was the 20th of her father's 22 children. She was only four and a half pounds when she was born, and she was sickly for most of her youth, suffering from double pneumonia, scarlet fever, whooping cough, measles, chickenpox, and polio. 
At the age of six, polio took the use of her left leg. The doctor said she would never walk again, but her mother was determined to support her daughter's recovery. She was given a metal leg brace. Her family worked hard to make sure she was comfortable, with her siblings taking turns massaging her leg, and her mom riding the bus with her to Nashville Weekly for physical therapy. By nine, Wilma had regained use of her leg. By 11, she was playing basketball with her siblings. Wilma attended a segregated high school where she played on the women's basketball team. She was designated an All-American player and set a state record for points scored in a single game. One day, Ed Temple, the coach of the Tennessee track team, asked Wilma's high school basketball coach to start a high school track team so that Wilma could compete as a sprinter. In this position, Wilma flourished. While still in high school, Wilma began attending college practices at Tennessee State and competing at the collegiate level. Coach Temple and his wife helped support the girls on the team by providing transportation and food. At 16, Wilma competed in the Olympics for the first time at the 1956 Olympic Games in Melbourne, Australia. She took home the bronze medal in the 4x100 relay. Wilma returned home to great fanfare with her high school marching band playing her the national anthem. At the time, she was a junior in high school. Shortly after graduating, Wilma gave birth to her daughter, Yolanda. She feared that motherhood would end her running career. At the time, college sports scholarships were not offered to women, so Wilma left her daughter in the care of her older sister so she could work to fund her education. Wilma enrolled at Tennessee State and continued training to run. She qualified for the 1960 Rome Olympics. The coach for the U.S. team that year, coincidentally, was Ed Temple. At the time, the Olympics were only able to be broadcast live locally, but the Italian sports fans loved Wilma. They referred to her as the Black Gazelle and cheered her on. Wilma, who once could not walk, took gold in the 100 meter. Setting Olympic and world records, Wilma captivated all Olympic viewers. Coach Ed Temple's legendary team of Tiger Bells, named for being Tigers on the track and Southern Bells off the track, in total produced 40 female Olympians and 14 American medals during his 44 years as a coach. Unfortunately, Wilma lived in an era when female sports champions could not profit off of their success. In the days before brand deals and sponsorships, Olympians had no way to gain financially from their success. Wilma, however, was able to use her newfound fame to support a cause much more important than cash, desegregation. Wilma used her influence to advocate for integration at home and abroad. Wilma led a fascinating life, both on and off the track. Cassius Clay, the young fighter who would become Muhammad Ali, was her personal friend, and they're even rumored to have dated. She was the first woman in her family to finish college, earning a degree in elementary education. She met with President John F. Kennedy, she toured Europe, and she was granted an audience with the Pope in Rome. Wilma retired in 1962, settled in her hometown, married her high school sweetheart, the father of her child, and took a job teaching second grade. She coached high school track and field, as well as basketball. She eventually moved to Indianapolis to work as a community center director and then to Maine to work for the Job Corps. In 1967, by request of the vice president, Wilma moved to Detroit to head the Operation Champ program, which supported athletic outreach. She supported running as a sport for girls and encouraged schools to form track and field teams. She also became a Detroit high school teacher, but when the rioting during the civil rights movement became too much, she decided to leave. On the day of MLK's assassination, she moved back home to Tennessee. After having four children and going through a divorce, Wilma sold some of her Olympic medals just to pay the bills. Her friend, Muhammad Ali, 
in protest of the Vietnam War, threw his gold medals into the river. Wilma watched as her Olympic records were broken, but she continued to work as a teacher and role model. She was inducted into five halls of fame and even published an autobiography. November 12, 1994, Wilma passed away due to a brain tumor. Wilma, in just her 54 short years of life, achieved so much. She worked as a movie studio representative, a network radio co-host, an administrative assistant at UCLA, an executive for a Nashville bank, a Nashville hospital, and an Indianapolis baking company, a representative for Minute Maid Orange Juice, a coach at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, a motivational speaker, and as the president of the Wilma Rudolph Foundation. Of Wilma, Benita Fitzgerald Brown, a 1984 Olympic champion, said, she showed it was okay for women to be powerful and black and beautiful. In 2014, Wilma's coach, Ed, was the first coach honored with the title U.S. Track and Field Legend Coach. His support brought the U.S. 23 Olympic medals earned by black women, including a civil rights activist, Ramona Tias, and an advocate for underprivileged kids, Edith McGuire. Ed passed away in 2016. Wilma's legacy lives in the hearts of young black women who are inspired to run. Several movies and documentaries have been produced based on her story. Her international impact is evidenced by the high school in Berlin that bears her name. You can watch recordings of Wilma's record-setting runs on the Olympics official YouTube channel, and I've included links for Haley to put that on our playlist. So go on and enjoy some Wilma running videos. Content warning for this next episode. Tony Stone was the first of three black ladies to join the all-male Negro Leagues, and with that, I must cover racism, sexism, and violence. There's really no way for me to chunk this, like my vignettes, where you can skip around the story, but I try to highlight when it's about to come in as much as possible. So let's play ball with Tony Stone, the first of three women to play professional baseball full-time that was an all-male team. Before we hit this ball out of the park, I need to cover some bases puns all around intended and I try to sprinkle in a few more. First, what is the catalyst for women having their own baseball teams? No, I mean baseball and not softball. Those are two different teams and Tony did play both or joining male teams in Tony's case. It's really World War II and we talked a little bit more about this in the intro with Maybelle Blair, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League and a league of their own. And I kind of get into a little bit more later as well when it's relevant to Tony. The second is while there were many progressive movements or progress movements, whatever you would like to call it, we still had racism and both teams were segregated. The All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, the Major League Baseball, and the Negro Leagues. Thus, we have the Negro Leagues for men and actually as of December 2020, see the NPR article in the show notes, the MLB recognized and still recognizes Negro Leagues as a major league within all that to say that it's a major league team, major league, it is professional. Like there was that connotation that it wasn't as professional as the MLB. And in the article and when they announced this, they called it a long time oversight. So yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Like you don't say? Of course it was. Now everyone is starting to get the recognition and people are 
reviewing our history and saying, you know what, we've made some bad choices because we definitely have. And we're still making some bad choices, but we're trying to be better people. But let's get back and play ball with Tony being one of the first in the Negro Leagues and how she came to that part. So born Marciania Lyle Stone, and I think I am butchering her name. I am so sorry. If someone knows how to pronounce it, please call in. I tried the Google Translate. I tried the YouTube. Um, I didn't get a good read because everyone calls her Tony. And I also am going to go with Tony because that was professional and personal for her name. And she was born in West Virginia. But her love of baseball grew when her family moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, when she was 10. And she played softball on a girls' Hylex softball club in St. Paul, Minnesota. And five years after that, she played on an all-males team. After graduating from high school, she fully switched over to baseball. Of course, that was not the end of her career. It took a home run, actually. In 1953, at the age of 22, she signed to play with the Indianapolis Clowns as second base. As I said in my content warning, there are some struggles with being the first lady in an all-male league, let alone team, and there were reports of her getting bullied by players. And some of these reports, I won't get into too much, but pitchers hitting her with the ball like while she was at bat. And yes, this does happen. This does still happen. I've even, like I mentioned in the intro, like I played uh, baseball and the few times I was at bat, I have gotten hit. You go to first base, you don't have to keep batting, but the pitcher is not supposed to intentionally hit you or every time you come to the plate, you get hit with the ball. That's not supposed to happen, especially when these balls are going 80 to 90 miles per hour on average. There are also articles noting that the reason why women were only allowed to play were to keep things interesting. And some of those connotations, I can't tell, and I might be bitter. I know Lexi was saying that she's possibly negative, especially against Amazon. Um, we're talking about a league of their own, and I might be bitter here, but I cannot accurately tell between the keep things interesting because they're such great baseball players like Tony or it's because it would be interesting if they fail um, and like people would come watch the one gal fail while the other team be successful who knows I'm gonna say it is because they are such great ball players and coming to the Indianapolis clowns she replaced Hank Aaron when he left for the Milwaukee Braves. And side note, for a whole well-rounded baseball history, Jackie Robinson had already joined the MLB as the first black player in the league for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. So this is a few years later. And the next season, 1954, for Tony, her contract was sold to the Kansas City Monarchs. And that was her last season. She retired after that season. So you might be saying, Haley, that's only two years. You were hyping her up. And I yes, I am. I am still hyping her up. And more is to come. But we're hitting 1990 because a lot of this is now I want to associate with the museums and the other history that she was included in, like being included in both the Women in Baseball 
and Negro League Baseball exhibits at the National Baseball Hall of Fame, a museum. And that same year, St. Paul declared March 6th as Tony Stone Day. And I think March 6th, I think we should get a group of people to go and see what Tony Stone Day is all about. I can only imagine. I did not want to burst my bubble in case it kind of has died down since, but especially with the pandemic, but thinking that it's a huge parade, lots of baseball, watching baseball, eating the classic baseball foods of hot dogs, peanuts. My personal fave is a cotton candy. I can never say no to a cotton candy. Anywho, I digress. We're in September 1993, three years after she was included in those exhibitions and Tony Stone Day was announced, but also three years before her death. Tony Stone was inducted into the Women's Sports Hall of Fame. So I'm really happy that she was able to witness that for her career. And within her, her career, she played over 50 games, had a point two four three batting average. So good. And hit a whopping 755 home runs. That's second in the career home run like list in general for this league. She also has noted that she was able to get a hit off one of the greatest pitchers in their league's history, Satchel Page, and was quoted with saying, people couldn't get a hit against him. I stood there shaking, but I got a hit. Right over second base, happiest moment of my life. And yeah, I would be happy too. And she in the rankings, came in fourth within the league. And that's incredible. And of course, because we love our funky tidbits about our ladies and just fun facts in general, there was actually a Broadway play called Tony Stone. And I need to know way more about this play because that's just so cool. Like, you know, you made it when you have a Broadway play about you. Like Cher, Cher has a Broadway play. Tony Stone has a Broadway play. Anywho, if you want to read more, there's a lot in the show notes. And in 2010, Martha Ackman wrote a biography on uh, Tony, which is also in the show notes. And the book is specifically is called Curveball. So please read up. I dove in deep. I also used A League of Their Own as research. And again, that, am- that Amazon um, is on Amazon, but that article about like Amazon's A League of Their Own um, with the creators talking about how they came about it is also in my show notes. So please enjoy. I have made a mistake in choosing this lady. I thought it would be fun to cover a trans lady in sports because obviously trans women are women. But not everyone thinks that way, so I'm going to try and breeze through it, but the story does have a trigger warning for transphobia and violence. Uh, Unfortunately, my primary source on this story is Wikipedia, because this lady is very private about her childhood, for good reason. Uh, But this lady is still alive, and I've seen some interviews to corroborate a lot of it, so I'm saying it's fine with the heads up. My lady today is Veronica Ivey, aka Rachel McKinnon. Uh, I, as usual, will not be sharing her dead name because I am not a horrible person. She goes by Veronica Ivey almost entirely these days, but she has published op-eds in the past as Rachel McKinnon, uh, and her YouTube channel is still Rachel McKinnon, 
So I only feel a little bit weird about mentioning that name. She actually changed it in December of 2019 and announced it in a tweet that read, quote, Yup, officially changing my name from Rachel McKinnon to Veronica Ivy. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk, end quote. Which I respect, but that is not how you use the TED Talk meme. Veronica was born in Victoria, British Columbia, so Canada, in 1982. The first page of Google says her birthday is July 18th, which would make her a cancer, but I can't find a source to corroborate that for sure. Veronica first had an inkling that she was trans when she was 13, but didn't make any moves towards transitioning until she had almost gotten her doctorate, beginning two days after she finished her dissertation in 2012. Her sports background is actually in badminton, but she moved to Charleston, South Carolina to become an associate professor of philosophy at the College of Charleston. Uh, And Charleston doesn't really have a badminton scene, so she took up competitive cycling. In October of 2018, she won the world 200-meter sprint record for women in the 35 to 39 age range. And then the very next day, she won the, I'm so sorry for how I'm about to say these French words, it's going to be bad, I'm like... I'm sorry. She won the Union Cycliste International, a Masters World Track Cycling Championship in the Women's Sprint 35 to 44 age bracket, becoming the first transgender World Track Cycling Champion. One year later, almost exactly, Veronica broke the record for the 200-meter sprint for females aged 34 to 39. Of note is that specific age range because the overall women's record is still held by a cis woman. However, Veronica's achievement made people extremely mad. Veronica received death threats, notably from Donald Trump Jr., uh, which led to the previously mentioned name change. The thing about trans women in sports is that trans women are, in fact, women. No, zero trans women even qualified for the Olympics until the most recent Tokyo Games. So, transphobes, have you maybe considered getting over yourselves? In an interview with Trevor Noah uh, this summer, which you can find in the show notes and on our YouTube playlist, Veronica discusses a lot of these ideas and issues further, including how testosterone has not been linked to enhanced performance in sports, and that because of hormone replacement therapy, or HRT, Veronica's body doesn't even produce testosterone anymore. You can find Veronica's op-ed work in the New York Times, NBC News, and Vice, advocating for trans rights and criticizing transphobes, which we love to see. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Instagram at girlbomb.productions. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. All three of us are doing a little bit of editing this week. You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, we're doing spooky season. It is the first week of October, I believe. Sure. With our new model. Yes. Alana is nodding and we're kicking things off with our favorite um, gals in the horror film industry. So get ready to get your socks spooked off of you. Um, Please wear socks while listening. So they will be spooked off. Um, If you're not wearing socks, what's going to be spooked off? We don't want your feet to be spooked off. What if they listen while they're driving? Caution. Caution yourself. Don't drive very carefully. It's going to be spooky. (laughs) It's going to be so spooky. 
dog baseball. All the tiny dogs wear little baseball pants and hit the balls with tiny dog bats. I'm imagining one of those, like, you know, those costumes where, like, it's only the front part of the dog, but it makes it look like the dog is holding yes. something. Yes, yes. So the I front half of the, the dog becomes a person. Yeah. Yeah, like the UPS driver is uh-huh. the classic. I'm a fan. 